Sunday, uh, the book of Ruth is Israel's story. Well, if this is the case, if the book of Ruth is Israel's story, then what are they to hear whenever they hear this story read for them or told to them? What are we to see from this story? From last week, we saw chapter 1 begins in a famine and it ends in a harvest, anticipating a feast. And I think that's instructive for our hope. Even out of famine, God promises harvest. Feasting. Chapter 3 for today begins in restlessness and it ends, chapter 3 ends with a redeemer who will not rest until rest for us is won. So Ruth is the story of unmerited grace, of unending mercy, of rest, of feasting. All of this for God's people as it is for the nations. In God's mercy and his grace, we share that story even today, for our Redeemer has come. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you've given us your word, living and active. Have your way with us, O Lord. May your grace be effective to change us more into the image of your dear Son, from one degree of glory to the next. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. The Redeemer, right? It's a phrase we hear often in church. The prophet Isaiah sings in the Lord's voice. He says, fear not, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name and you are mine. Isaiah's prophesying, saying, fear not, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. So, 23 minutes and 42 seconds left, so I got to go, okay? Well, now it's back, Okay. Um, so the image of that phrase, fear not for I have redeemed you, it, it's squarely rooted in this imagery throughout the book of Ruth, that there is a redeemer of God's people. Well, what is a redeemer? What does it look like? We've got four chapters in a beautiful love story named Ruth. So chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, this is after, of course, Naomi and family fled to the land of Moab and her husband and sons died, but her daughter-in-law, Ruth, comes back to the land where there is now harvest, and they need a redeemer. They need someone, two widow women, they need someone to save them. So verse, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, then Naomi, uh, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Ah, love is in the air, right? When you see threshing floors, you think love, don't you? Now, this is not the love that we find in sentimental Hollywood films or sappy greeting cards. This is the affection given to another out of a self-sacrificing obedience. It's a giving oneself for the good of another at great cost. See, Ruth loves Naomi, obeys her very word. Boaz loves his family, as we'll see. Even the dead Elimelech, the widowed Naomi, and this Moabitess who obeys God's command with greater fervency than his own people. So, like any good matchmaker worth her salt, Naomi's hatching a plan at the beginning of chapter 3. She's arranging for the first barn wedding. This is where it all began. 
I'm just kidding. I don't know if that's true or not. Chapter 3, verse 3. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak. Go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking, but when he lies down. Observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. It seems that this is a great plan, doesn't it? Just get dolled up, sneak down to the threshing floor, and while all are asleep, then you go and uncover his feet and lay down beside him. Just see where things go. Now, I've been told that the dating scene is, looks a lot different, even from the last 10 years. I don't know what that means, but I'm guessing this plan here, timeless. <laughs> timeless, right? It's probably so effective even today. It's right up there with those one-liners that you hear, right? Like, like the guy that goes up and says, hey, you like Star Wars? Because, Yeah. Because Yoda won for me. <laughs> right? You guys think it's kind of a groaner, but I see some young men taking notes for the first time. <laughs> it's a strange love story to our ears, isn't it? Uh, Ruth believes it's a good plan, and so she obeys Naomi's words. So verse 6, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. seems women weren't allowed at the threshing floor. She wasn't to go down during the time of threshing. Stealth is required here. This ceremonious uncovering of the feet, it could be literally just uncovering his feet, or it could imply more than that. Verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Imagine waking a bit chilled because your feet are uncovered, and you find a woman beside him. So he seems to ask a logical question, verse 9. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. It's, remember, it's dark, midnight here. There's no 60-watt light bulbs or any efficient LEDs to light up the threshing floor. He asked the reasonable question, who is this woman who lies beside me, who has done him a great kindness? And you kind of wonder, well, what is this kindness? Uncovering a feet doesn't sound super kind. What is, this un what is this kindness? Well, first of all, she identifies Boaz as her redeemer. She identifies him as her redeemer. She uses the same phrase. There was a phrase in, in chapter 2, verse 12, where, where Boaz invited God to shelter Ruth. He says to her, May the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And now, where is Ruth taking refuge but under the wings of Boaz? She looks to Boaz. She's obedient to God looking to Boaz to be the instrument that God uses for her salvation. She will look to no other field, to no other God, to no other man or means. It is a kindness she expresses to Boaz. Her second kindness is to her obedience to the Lord and the Lord's word. This is a kindness, not only for him, but for the community, because faithfulness to God, faithfulness to his word, fosters flourishing in the community. 
See, Naomi's plan and Ruth's obedient to that, obedience to that plan, it's all seeking to fulfill God's word. Deuteronomy chapter 25 and a handful of verses in Deuteronomy 25 describe what's called the Leverite law. Okay? I know we're familiar with that, but I'm going to go through it a little bit. We need to tell the story of this law, the Leverite law, so that we understand Ruth a little bit more fully. You guys ready to buckle in for a bit? Inheritance in the land was God's gift, a portion to each family. Think of the land as the small spheres of dominion, which would be passed from generation to generation. But what would happen to that inheritance if the husband or the father of the family would die but had no sons to pass the land down to? Like when Elimelech dies and his sons die, what would happen to the land allotted for that family since there's no sons to inherit the land? Now, throughout Scripture, allowance is made for daughters to inherit, and adopted children or adopted sons may also inherit, but the normal means of inheritance to pass on in such a situation would be through the Leverite law. If no sons are born to this family, the, 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 the male heir that dies, and the, the, the nearest male relative can redeem the lands by producing an offspring with the widow. That near relative is called a lever, hence the Leverite law. So, if a husband dies with no sons to inherit the land, what would happen is that the husband's brother would marry the widow, take her as his own wife, okay? A son born to that marriage would actually take the name of the deceased husband and then have the property or the land allotted to that husband, the dead man, Okay? So the lever will not possess that land, but he will accrue all of the cost and all of the protection of provision for that family, although the son that born to that family would inherit all of the property. The lever, or the brother redeemer, would possess his own property, but not the land allotted to that dead man. Now, the lever had choice here, and if the lever refused to perform the duty, the widow is to spit in his face publicly, shaming him, and then to take his sandal, in effect saying, now you must walk in my shoes, ashamed, outcast. Now, is this law making, is it understandable at least, whether it makes sense, like this is a good way to do it or not? Like, this is what the law says. Where do we see it in scripture? Remember when Jesus was tested by the Pharisees about the law and they asked about the woman who married somebody who died and then so she married his brother, married seven brothers, whose husband would she be or wife would she be in, in heaven? Okay, that's the law being tested is the Leverite law. So even in Jesus' day. Back to Genesis 38, we hear of a larger story. We see this happen in the life of Israel or particularly the tribe of Judah. We've got Judah, the son of, of Jacob here. So Genesis 38 tells the story of Judah who fails to fulfill this law. He was to give his daughter-in-law Tamar one of his sons, but he failed to do it. See, Tamar was married to Judah's oldest son, Ur. Now, he was a wicked man, and the Lord put him to death. So what does that mean? Judah's second, next son, Onan, would then marry Tamar, which he does. But he fails to fulfill the responsibility of bearing children with Tamar. He doesn't fulfill the law, and the Lord puts him to death. So that leaves Judah's third son, Shelah. 
Judah promises. Tamar, I'll give you my third son when he's old enough. The age comes and never gives the son. Tamar is widowed without protection, without provision, without inheritance. So she has to trick her father Judah into relationship. And out of that relationship, she bears, she gives birth to twin sons, Perez and Zerah. Judah is tricked into fulfilling the law. As a lever, he had refused that obedience to God's law, but Tamar's righteous deception, what that did is it preserved the seed line. And it's an unusual fulfillment of that law in Deuteronomy 25, but this is Israel's story. Okay, are you guys awake still? That's a lot. Back to Ruth. Naomi trusts Boaz. He's a male relative of Elimelech, her husband who had died. She trusts that Boaz will fulfill the role of Lever through Ruth. And that is what Ruth hopes as well. That's what she invites down at the threshing floor. She proposes a Leverite arrangement or a Leverite marriage. And Boaz recognizes she is seeking to be obedient not only to Naomi but to God's word. And it's a kindness that she expresses to Naomi, to the Lord, and to him. He is glad to serve Ruth, Naomi, and the Lord in a proposed Leverite marriage. So he says, all that you ask of me, I will do. There on the threshing floor, the bride-to-be is covered by the wings of her would-be husband-redeemer, but a problem arises. Verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Another relative is closer in bloodline to Elimelech, and he lives. And this man, this family member, would have the first right of redemption to fulfill the law of the Leverite marriage here of Deuteronomy 25. So Boaz needs to yield that responsibility first to this other near relative, should that relative so desire to fulfill Deuteronomy 25. Boaz sends her home early in the morning, gives her six measures of grain, making sure that she is not seen as some young co-ed who was doing the walk of shame. Ruth, if she is seen as simply a young harvester, has got an early jump on the day. And Naomi greets her in verse 16. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Literally, what Naomi asks her is, What is your name? She knows it's Ruth. What is she asking? Are you Mrs. Boaz? Ruth tells her the story, and Naomi understands that the matter is not yet resolved, that there is not yet rest in the land for Naomi or for Ruth. And so Naomi exhorts Ruth. She says, wait upon your Redeemer. He will not rest until your rest is won. This is Israel's story. This is their hope. They are called time and again to look to God, to wait for their Redeemer who will win for them their rest. Now, the first 10 verses of chapter 4 tell the story of Boaz's faithfulness to God and his people. Boaz goes to the gate of Bethlehem uh, where the elders would gather and where judgments are rendered. So Boaz calls this near relative of Elimelech's, the dead man, right? Calls him to the gate to, to, to propose a legal transaction here. He makes the near relative aware of Elimelech's death 
and that this man has the right of level right marriage or to own the land. So what Boaz tells him is, hey, there's this lot, there's this property, and you have the right to purchase this land. And the near relative says that would be fine. It will be a cost, and the money will help um, Naomi to survive, to live, and it will help him as he gets more land. But then Boaz, you know, flips through the annals of the law and the history, and he recites page 3, paragraph 12, section 23, lines 8 through 10, which state this. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. At that point, he says, the near relative says, it would not be beneficial or fruitful for me. The cost would outweigh the benefit for me. I've got my own property, my own land to take care of. He gives the right of redemption to Boaz. So Boaz and the man formalize this transaction at the gate with the elders. Boaz takes the right of redemption which the nearer relative has relinquished. Thereby, he bears responsibility for land, takes the hand of Ruth in marriage. You know, it's that same old Hallmark movie, right? Time and again, the Leverite Law. Chapters 4, verses 11 and following. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily as Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. She bears a son. Familiar with the story of Genesis 38, we are not surprised to hear the villagers bless this marriage in the way of Perez, perpetuating the seed line. To bless in the way of Rachel and Leah, those women were used by God to, to, um, to, to, to foster and to grow the people of Israel. It tells us something about the significance of this family, of this seed line. Those two, mothers were, or those two women were mothers to Israel and their children. So the child out of this marriage will one day be the redeemer of those people of Israel. Remember, the book of Ruth is Israel's story. That the Messiah is to come through this line. Though the womb was barren, life is given. Though there is death, salvation has come. Ruth is Israel's story, and she is ours as well. These four brief chapters tell us the story of resurrection. Most notably, think of Elimelech who was dead, but his name lives on. From death to life through the Redeemer, his name, his inheritance is raised up. Ruth is raised up from an enemy nation and undergoing the curse of God to being, of being God's enemy. She is raised up to be a child of the living God. Naomi is raised from bitterness to joy, where she sings of weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Though we die in our Redeemer, we have hope for resurrection life. Whenever you read or hear of the book of Ruth, remember at the heart of that story is resurrection. And of course, it's the story of redemption as well, isn't it? Look at verses 14 and 15. The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more than you than seven sons and given birth. 
And Naomi takes the child that they bore and places him on the knee of Naomi. What was lost is found. What was dead is made alive. Inheritance, name, livelihood, all redeemed at the obedience of Boaz. And what was the cost to Ruth? What was the cost to Naomi? What did it cost them? It cost them simple obedience, a love for God, a love for their Redeemer. See, their Redeemer has come. Faithful, self-sacrificing, moved only by love, animated only in grace. Can you find yourself in Ruth's story, in Naomi's story? We all have sinned. We have all sought salvation in the fields of Moab. We have fled to other gods. We have become bitter and angry at God. And yet our Boaz, whose name is strength, our Boaz is named Jesus Christ, whose cost of redemption is his very life, his body broken, his blood shed, that we might have life. At the heart of the book of Ruth, it is the story of redemption. It is also the story of restoration, not only for individuals like Ruth and for Naomi, but for a whole people. All of Israel can find their redemption, their restoration here in this story. See, the book of Deuteronomy in another place also says that no children from an unlawful marriage shall enter into the worship of God for ten generations. For ten generations, bastard children from that marriage will not be allowed into the holy worship of the holy and living God. So from Tamar's womb, the seed line is perpetuated for generations as children, as outcasts from Judah on down through Tamar's line there. And have you ever wondered why we get to this genealogy at the very end of it? just a beautiful love story? I mean, this is like the credits are rolling now, right? But we're watching the credits. We're sticking through the credits and we read, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron, is that how you want to finish a love story? Why is this here? Don't you wonder that? Until you start to number them, right? Perez, one. Hezron, two. You go on down until you find that familiar name. Obed, well, that's number seven. Or number, uh, Boaz is number seven, then Obed's number eight, Jesse number nine. And who's that tenth generation from Judah, from Perez? Who's that tenth generation from Perez? What's his name? David. This is why the story is at the end here, because God is restoring the kingdom of Israel to be his own people. For ten generations, the children could not enter into the worship of God. They were not fit to be kings until the tenth generation from that unlawful marriage. David is raised up as king, the first legitimate child, fit to rule. What this ending tells us is that not just Ruth, not just Naomi, not just Boaz and his family, the whole people of God, their whole salvation, redemption, restoration is bound up in this seed line. For from Obed eventually would come King David. So we see that finally the end of this story is one of rest. What began with the restlessness ends now in rest. Boaz, Ruth, the seed line survives. Obed is placed on the knees of Naomi, a sign of adoption, imaging adoption for this child. A servant's son is given an inheritance to perpetuate the name of the dead, ensuring life to Naomi, Ruth, and all who would come after her. Now, at the end of the story, life will go on. Famine will come again. 
rebellion and lack of repentance will starve the souls of God's people. Kings will rise and kings will fall. God's people will be exiled. God's people will return. And the backdrop behind all of these stories, all of their history, is the book of Ruth. God is unfolding his story of redemption through the lives of humble, obedient servants. And he's pointing always to our Savior, to our Redeemer, who was Jesus Christ. See, our lives are given to inhabit this story in the book of Ruth. In it, we see Jesus as our true and greater Boaz, in whom rests all our hope of redemption, restoration, and rest. He also is our Obed. The name means servant. He is our suffering servant who gives himself that we might enter God's presence without fear and without shame. Jesus is our Redeemer. We, the church, are his bride. He covers us in his righteousness. He protects us from all enemies, even death itself, provides for us our inheritance and everlasting rest where we feast at the table of our King now and forevermore. Praise be to God, our Redeemer, for Christ lives and he sings with the prophet Isaiah. He sings over us. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word living and active. Draw near to us. Conform us into the image of Christ, that as we depart from this place, we might serve you gladly, your church, the bride of Christ, empowered, equipped to serve you throughout the world. We pray your blessing upon us now. In Jesus' name, amen.